We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator, capital C, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge, capital S, capital J, of the world, for the rectitude of our intention is due in the name, capital N, and by the authority, capital A, of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, capital P, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Historian Gregory Elder reminds us that of the 56 men who signed the Declaration, the great majority perhaps all identified themselves as Christians, contrary to what we tend to hear these days. And all but one were Protestants. Four were either present or former ministers, and a number of the signers were sons of clergy, I being one of those. At least half of them had studied divinity at their various universities. The denominations break down uh, it, it runs as follows. 32 of the signers, well over half, were Episcopalians or Anglicans, the old state church of England. There were 13 Congregationalists. 12 were Presbyterians. There were two Quakers, two Unitarians, and one Roman Catholic. This was an eclectic group of ministers, businessmen, teachers, university professors, sailors, captains, farmers, and they knew there was a bullseye on their head once they signed that Declaration of Independence. You see, if you know your history, almost all the signers lost their retirements, oh, excuse me, their fortunes, but not their sacred honor. Now, if you want to know more about this, because it's not my intention today to unpack all of that or, or the great majority of that, but if you want to know more, I, I recommend to you a book called Forged in Faith, Forged in Faith by Rod Craig. How Faith Shaped the Birth of the Nation, 1607 to 1776, and notice those years because those are the years that essentially led up to 1776, and th this book is really about the pastors, the ministers who shaped the ideas of our founding fathers. So, happy birthday, everybody. 245 years old today. I happen to believe that since you came in today, whatever your particular convictions are or not about politics, Fourth of July is on your mind. It can't not be, right? It, it, it's Fourth of July. And I think that we need to think biblically for a few minutes about what it means to be politically incorrect in our body politic. All right. A couple of working definitions, and before I define those two terms, and most of you know what they are anyway, politically correct, well, it's in the top 3% of phrases used in America today. 
politically correct. And you know what it means? Conforming to a belief that language and practices which could offend political sensibilities as in matters of sex or race should be eliminated. Not just avoided, but eliminated. That sounds like an attack on free speech to me, but we'll say no more about that. Conformity to this pressure of being politically correct has led to an almost complete shutdown of a desperately needed national, and for that matter, local conversation about how we live together. And in our families, oftentimes, it's fight or flight. Whether it's on a social media platform, in our educational institutions, around the kitchen table. And here's what's most grievous to me. It's crept into the church, capital C. And it crouches at the door of this body of believers. Now, what is a body politic? A body politic, defined, it means all the people in a particular country considered as a single group. And the metaphor comes from the Greeks that led to the Romans when they thought about the society as a body, a metaphorical physical body. So what does it mean to be the body of Christ in the body politic? Well, I want to suggest to you today, and these are the words of Jesus, it means being salty. Salty. Are you considered a salty character? Mark McVeigh, are you a salty kind of character? I've met a couple of you folks here. Some of you are right salty characters. What comes to your mind when you think about a salty character? Well, in the, I looked up a quick definition of what it means to be salty, and it certainly wasn't Jesus' definition, but here it is. Exceptionally bitter, angry, or upset. Now, that's not Mark, of course, or anybody here. The Urban Dictionary says it's, it's being upset, angry, or bitter as a result of being made fun of or embarrassed. It's also a characteristic of a person who feels out of place or is feeling attacked. And some of you are going, that's funny. I kind of feel that way as a Christian in my culture increasingly. And, of course, there's that old phrase that says, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't talk about religion or politics. And what's really funny about that to me is that that's exactly what we're supposed to be talking about all the time. It's not just what we're talking about, though. It's how we talk about it, isn't it? Politics and religion, good night. That's all of life. Even for the atheist, which is a religion, by the way, by definition. And then we have these folks that say, my country right or wrong. I hope there's nobody here that believes this, but my country right or wrong, which is another way of saying no matter what we do as a country, we're right. That's not biblical. And then we have a group of people today that are saying, my country always wrong. That's just as bad and wrong. So what is the proper kind of approach? Well, when my country is right, I celebrate and support and honor. When my country is wrong, I pray for and confront and influence to bring change. And if I'm asked to compromise my conscience as a believer in Jesus Christ, I say, and this is a quote from the Bible, by the way, I must obey God rather than man. I am first a citizen of heaven and then a citizen of my country. 
So when I mention words like abortion, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgender, poverty, racism, social justice, the widow, the orphan, foster systems, the economy, foreign policy, socialism versus capitalism, critical race theory, etc., etc., etc. What happens to you? What happened to you just now? Emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. How about those founders? You know, they took the words of Jesus pretty seriously. They were regularly in church. They were hearing the word of God being preached to them all the time. And so should we today as we consider our role as followers of Christ in the body politic of America. So what did Jesus say very simply about how we are to live in our culture? He said, you are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 13. But he said quickly right after that, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. Is your saltiness being trampled underfoot by people? Do you fear people and their opinions and optics more than you fear the Almighty? It's a tough question, isn't it? Not an easy one to answer. So what's Jesus' take on salt? Well, this is not your store-bought Morton variety. You know, the white stuff that many people think is so dangerous. We, you know, we need salt in our bodies, as you know, but many of us over-salt things. We don't even give the food an opportunity to be tasted before we put salt on. I have a confession to make. Oh, is that you? Yeah, ladies, okay, thank you for confessing. We'll come and have revival with you right after the, you know. <laughs> Stay away from salt! No, no, that's not, that's not the essence of this message. I have a confession to make. The one thing that I put salt on, and this one surprised some of you, is corn on the cob. I just can't help it. I put the butter on, I put it. How many corn on the cob salty people are here? All right. Now, we won't talk about any other foods that you put salt on. So I put some salt on, but most foods have indigenous salt, and that's all you really need. And we need salt. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Uh, you'll never think, I, I hope you never think about salt again after this message, but it ties into who we are. Jesus said, not I hope you become salt or you should plan to become salt. He says, you are the salt of the world. Now, the salt that we have is now been altered since 1924. It's fortified with iodine and chemicals. It's really not that good. And I'm sorry, folks, for some of you that and then did the Himalayan, the Himalayan pink salt, you know, the one where you turn it upside down, you feel so cool, you feel like a, a chef as you're turning it around and it comes out, and you go, wow, I am great at cooking as a result. Sorry, that salt has been shown to be not really much better than the other stuff that we've been using all through the years from Mr. Morton, whoever that was. Biblical salt, however, was always sourced and harvested with its surrounding minerals. Please listen to this. It was much more than sprinkling a little seasoning on that Jersey corn on the cob, which, by the way, the Garippas are enjoying. How many of you are Jersey corn fans? Any Jersey corn fans here? Okay, so do they have Jersey corn down here? Do they have it? No, no, probably not. Neapolitan corn, I don't know what you call it here. So Jersey corn, I, my, my family had a barbecue yesterday. What did they have? Of course they had the corn. Right? So Jersey corn. But we're not talking about sprinkling salt on corn. And this becomes significant when Jesus declares, you are the salt of the earth. What was on the mind of Jesus and his listeners when they heard this metaphor? Now, when you approach the scripture, here's a little side note. 
when you approach the scripture and you study the scripture, most of us want to go straight to application. There's a risk in that. You could end up misapplying the scripture, as many have through the years and through the decades. But the approach to scripture should be first to observe what's there, and then to interpret, understand what it means, then to correlate, take in the the text, the the, uh, remote context and uh, other scriptures, and then make your application. See, there's a process to really applying the Bible in a proper way. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about salt in the context of observing and interpreting what does it really mean? And what did it mean to the author? What did it mean to Jesus? And what did it mean to his hearers? And it gives us insight into what it means for us to be salt properly in our culture today. Now, Egyptian curing practices adopted in Israel, remember, they didn't have any uh, ice back at the time, and so salt was a preservative. Everyone knew that that was salt's primary role. So one of the things that Jesus was saying was this. God has placed us in this culture, in this time, in this moment, to preserve the ways, the teachings, the life, the power, the presence of Christ. We are meant to be salt spreaders. And in addition to being a preservative, salt, of course, is a seasoning. They understood that. It unlocks flavor. Too much is no good. Just the right amount is necessary to a great dish, even back then in the Bible days. Margaret Feinberg, who's um, a wonderful observer of Scripture and 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 a great presenter of Bible studies on various subjects. She has this particular uh, uh, study on the salt of the earth, what we're talking about today, and she says this, as the salt of the earth, we are agents of flavoring. Our purpose is to bring the taste of heaven to earth wherever we go. Salt improves flavors as it seasons. In low concentrations, salt suppresses bitterness and enhances sweetness. Have you ever thought about that? In higher concentrations, salt reduces sweetness, but enhances many savory flavors. Just as salt brings out the best in food, so too Christ brings out the best in us as others experience the flavor of Christ through us. Now, I love these passages that flow from the words of Jesus here when he's talking about salt. Paul says, let your speech at all times be gracious and pleasant, and lo and behold, what does he say? Seasoned with Salt, so that you will know how to answer each one who questions you. That's Colossians 4, 6. Peter puts it this way. This is one of my favorite scriptures in, in, in the Bible. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But he says, always be ready to give a logical defense. The word there is apologia in the Greek. It's where we get the word apologetics, a defense. Always be ready to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you to account for the hope and confident assurance elicited by faith that is within you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Now, in addition to being preservers and flavorers within the bitter decay of our fallen culture, and I don't think anyone of us here would disagree with that, there's something more. Matthew's account reveals But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. Salt can and does lose its saltiness through the influx of substances. 
And when salt is overpowered, it loses its ability to perform as God designed. Salt is an influencer. And indeed, if we're not careful in our understanding of Scripture and our commitment to be doers of the word and not merely hearers, we can find ourselves useless salt, worthless, neutralized, disqualified to be used of God, to preserve, to flavor, to impact, to influence. But get ready for this. Luke adds another dimension, and well, (laughs) frankly, it stinks. The high heaven. What might I be referring to? You see, in Luke's rendering of Jesus' salt talk, he says this, Luke 14, 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good, but if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? Got a rhetorical question, right? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear and heed my word. So this is a new twist involving dirt and, you know, the smelly stuff. So first, the dirt. Now look, folks, I am no gardener. Any gardeners here? Any people who love to get their hands in the soil? You know, you feel like you're get God's green earth and his mud and you love to get dirty. And any, gar- any people have gardens and growing tomatoes in their backyard or anything like that? Anybody doing that? Oh, well, let me just tell you something about New York culture, especially Italian culture. In Brooklyn, where most of the backyard is cement, there'll be a little section of dirt that someone creates because they got to make their own tomatoes. I'm not kidding. This is true. My wife and I have been living in in the same place for about two years, and she has been moaning and groaning. You're going to meet my wife next week. She's going to be with me next week. Can't wait for her to come. Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie. Her maiden name was Kazucci. And now it's Mercaldo. Anyway, okay, enough of that. But my wife is half Sicilian, half Napolitan, which is what we say, half Neapolitan, right? Okay, so half and half. We won't get into that at the moment. But she had to have a tomato garden. She was, wait, wait, when am I going to get my tomato garden? She had me going out to get dirt. We had a guy come in and construct the whole section in the backyard. And we're in a fairly nice piece of property. It's not like Brooklyn. There's actually grass and trees and so forth. Um, but the bottom line is that she had to have this garden. She is a gardener. She loves to grow tomatoes and you name it back there, herbs and so forth. But what I discovered about gardens and growing tomatoes is that salt has something to do with it. I never would have thought this. Did you know that both sodium and the salt substitute, potassium chloride, appear on the list of ingredients in miracle Grow? How many of you bought a bag? Come on, you know what miracle Grow is. You bought a bag of it at some point along the way, right? <laughs> See, it's not only humans who require salt to live, but plants and soil need it too. So that's dirt. But what about dung? That's the second thing, right? Got to have two Ds. When you're preaching, you got to try to alliterate whenever you can. Anyway, dung. Beyond this, this passage suggests that salt plays a role in manure too. Now listen to this. Salt helps break down fresh excrement for better plant absorption. The mineral also prevents dung hills from rotting and becoming useless for providing nutrients to crops. Who would have thunk it? See, Luke is not describing table salt. Jesus wasn't describing the same table salt, neither was Matthew. In this particular case, Luke, Luke is describing fertilizer salt. Yes, as the salt of the earth, we are agents of human flourishing. Jesus calls us to be fertilizers 
in his kingdom. And I love the way Feinberg puts it. She says, we are the salt poured on that which is foul in order to foster fresh new life. We are created to help others blossom and bud as they pursue the life that God intends, assuming they're pursuing a life that God intends. Flourishing lives demonstrate evidence of the kingdom of God. Now, you may have never thought about this before, but I I came to discover as I was studying that the Latin root sal, S-A-L, means salt. Salad. Salary. So too is the word salvation. That's no coincidence. Sal, salt, vation. You see, the effect of salt brings about a refuge for the soil, for the fertilizer in our lives. See, sometimes God places us in a context, yeah, a religious or political conversation, and it may be happening today with the people that you gather with. It's probably on your mind. So sometimes you'll be in a context where you'll kind of feel like, well, like manure's all over you. God loves to place us in the middle of hardship, discomfort, awkwardness, and yes, stinkiness at times. He loves to push us out of our comfort zone. But he calls us to be fertilizers. See, God calls us to be salty fertilizers, bringing his presence and his message of sal, dot, 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 vation, <laughs> to our dysfunctional and dying world. So, salt, preservers, flavorers, fertilizers of the earth. There's a lot packed into that little phrase that maybe some of you knew, maybe some of you didn't, but I certainly didn't know it. I passed by that section many, many times, read it, even memorized it at one point as a young man, but I never knew the implications. Not in this way. So what does it mean to be salt or salty in an increasingly hostile and intolerant culture? Well, in a phrase, God has called us to be salty ambassadors. Salty ambassadors. Agents of transformation. We don't transform people. It's the Lord who transforms, but we get to bring the message. Like Billy Graham said, he goes, look, I didn't make the bread. I found the bread. Here's the bread. Go get the bread. See, we point to the truth. We are ambassadors. We represent the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20 tells us, that God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation, verse 19. And then in 20, he says that we are ambassadors of reconciliation for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. You see, the implications of Jesus' words are the same for us today as the hearers under the Roman oppression of that culture. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Does anyone doubt that we are living in an America that more resembles Rome than it does colonial America? I wish it were not true. I believe we are in Rome right now. We need to wake up and realize that in many ways, the believers, those first believers that came to faith in Christ who were facing the oppression of Rome, and many of the Roman believers, we have the same situation that we're facing now that they did. Maybe not with the same ramifications, exactly. But culturally, I believe it's true. So here's what Jesus says to us today. Matthew 5, 13, from the message, which I heard is an allowable paraphrase 
because your pastor uses it. I, I checked on this, okay, just to make sure. For some of you purists, only the translation. Listen, I'm a translation guy, true translation, but every once in a while, someone comes along and brings an insight, and, and here it is. Matthew 5.13, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the world. Don't you love that? If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Keep an open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Hmm. And since it is July 4th, doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't always land on a Sunday. But it did this year. And since it's July 4th, let's consider for a few moments how some of our founders were salty in their body politics. This particular founding father said, statesman, my dear sir, he was speaking to a pastor when he said this, and, and, and by the way, this is June 21st, 1776. You got the date? June 21st, just a few days before July 4th, 1776, right? Statesman, my dear sir, may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. The only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue. Anybody want to guess who said that? Well, I'll tell you. John Adams. These are John Adams' words. Let me give you another one, which might be a little bit more familiar. This one might be maybe as hard to guess. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is, probable, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided in our little partial local interests and our projects will be confounded. Anybody know who said that? Benjamin Franklin, the person along with John Adams, who many current historians wrongly identify as anti-religion, and they may have been deists, who knows, but they certainly believed in the Creator, capital C, and they certainly had a Christian, biblical worldview. So what was Benjamin Franklin's suggestion, or better stated, prescription for this group? Because where he said this was at the Constitutional Convention, 11 years after the Declaration of Independence, 1787. So what does he say? I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. And that one or more of the clergy, God help us, more than, more than one clergyman getting up, of this city should be requested to officiate in that service. Benjamin Franklin. Now, years ago, I read a book that changed my life and equipped me to become a lifestyle evangelist. I don't mean in a formal way, just sharing the gospel. And some of you might remember this book. It was authored by Rebecca Manley Pippard, and it was called Out of the Salt Shaker. Now, some of you are long-term Christians. Any of you remember this book? It was a great book on lifestyle evangelism. It changed my life. 
And here's what she challenged me to do as a young 20-year-old reading that book, preparing for the ministry. Get out of the salt shaker. Influence, preserve, fertilize, be biblically correct. You like that phrase? Be biblically correct and affect the surrounding soil of your culture, your neighborhood, your community, your political context. Yeah. And wherever else God may give you impact. You see, it turns out to be biblically correct in this culture means that you have to be politically incorrect. But when you are politically incorrect, be biblically correct. Speak the truth. Speak it in love. So let's be politically incorrect ambassadors for Christ in the body of Christ and in the body politic of our broken, needy, yet still beautiful country. I don't think anyone in this audience Maybe perhaps a few of you, but most of you would agree with me that we desperately need a Holy Ghost revival in the church. I don't think anyone would really disagree. There is no awakening in society until there's revival in the church. And what is the key to revival? The key to revival is being in a place of desperate calling out and dependence upon the Lord. First, starting with you, the old phrase is, Draw a circle around yourself and say, Lord, revive me. Revive me, Lord. But then don't stop there. Pray that that will spread, that there would be revival in the Naples gathering to whatever degree it is needed. And I don't think anyone here would disagree with me that it's needed here amongst us. But then it spreads from there. And as J. Edwin Orr, one of the great experts on revival and awakening, would say, Revival's for the church, awakening is for society. There will never be awakening in society for people to come to understand and embrace the glorious gospel until authentic revival happens in the church. So, happy Independence Day, my fellow Americans. Most of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if not all of you. And when later today on our 245th birthday as Americans, when you salt the corn on the cob, which many of you will do, remember who you are. You are salt. Be a sanctified salt spreader. Be who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the excitement that comes to our emotions and our spirit when we think about not just the fact that you've saved us and we are on our way to heaven because we're citizens of heaven even as we pray, but we have an opportunity to impact, to influence, to preserve the things, the ancient words, the truths that have been handed down to us, to impact, to influence, to fertilize (laughs) wherever we go. Lord, I thank you for the dear sister that prayed before the service that we would be filled with your spirit. We need the control of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord. We cannot accomplish this. We cannot be who we are unless you, Holy Spirit, are empowering us. And we know that you live within us as believers, Lord, but we once again take a moment to yield ourselves to you. 
so that you would fulfill your purposes through us, that our manifest destiny, an old phrase that some of us remember from our history courses, that our manifest destiny would be to fulfill the coin on our lives for the Great Commission, to love you with all our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, help us to be salt for your glory.